Welcome to episode number 71 of 100 Plus, an overview of 100 of the most important people, events, and ideas of the last 2,000 years. This is a survey of the forces and factors that have shaped today's world, Western civilization, the Christian faith, and you. This series of lectures is based on the idea that if we back up to the intersection of the Greeks and the Romans, with the Jews and the Christians, and then trace the development of this group as it unfolds through the Roman Empire, Middle Ages, Renaissance, Reformation, Enlightenment, Modernity, and Post-Modernity, we will not only gain a better understanding of the past, we will also gain greater clarity about the present and a better understanding of what it looks like to faithfully follow Jesus today. In this lecture, we focus on the second of four people who are ruling from the grave. That is, those whose ideas and ideologies not only shaped the 20th century, but continue to shape the world in the 21st century as well. In the last episode, we looked at Charles Darwin. Today, it is Karl Marx. I'd like to open with two quotes, and I'll let you know right now, one of them is from Karl Marx. Here's the first. Union with Christ consists of the most intimate communication with him in having him before our eyes and in our hearts and being filled with the highest love for him while at the same time turning our hearts to our brothers whom he has closely bound to us and for whom he also sacrificed himself. Here's the second quote. All the believers were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands and houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need." Want to hear those again? <laughs> Some of you realize that the second quote is from Acts chapter 4, which means that the first quote is from Karl Marx. The second quote, with everyone sharing everything in common, that sounds like something Marx would have said or written, uh, which is why um, some people, uh, some Christ followers, don't like it. Um, there are actually, I think, several reasons why people don't like this passage in Acts chapter 4, or at least should say that it makes them nervous. Um, some people don't like it because they think it's fake, that it shows too much uh, Greek influence. If you study Greek philosophy, you may remember that the Greeks loved this whole idea of the ideal. Uh, Plato wrote about the you know, utopia in the Republic, and some think that... Um, that some overly zealous uh, Christian sort of looked at what Plato had been writing and thought about all these, you know, sort of nirvana kinds of uh, scenarios and ended up inserting some of that into the book of Acts. Uh, that's not the case. We have plenty of bibliographic support to rule out any kind of that tampering. And besides that, it doesn't really describe utopia. All you have to do is read the first chapter uh, or first, um, first part of chapter 5 in the book of Acts with uh, Ananias and Sapphira who are uh, part of the church but lie and end up losing their life or read Acts 6 and see that there was tension 
There was ethnic tension between uh, the widows, between the Hellenic widows and uh, the Jewish widows. The, the Greek, the Hellenic widows thought that the Jewish widows were getting uh, a better deal. So all you have to do is read the book of Acts to know that this is not utopia that is being described. Um, a second reason some Christians uh, don't like this passage is because they think it's a failed experiment that doesn't last long. That is that uh, the early Christians were briefly naive and unwisely gave all their money away. And then once it was all gone, they were in trouble and they needed people to, to bail them out. They had to all go to a plan B. Uh, and to support this theory, they point out that if you keep reading in the New Testament, uh, you get to 2 Corinthians and you see that Paul is going to make an appeal to other churches to help the poor Christians in Jerusalem. Um, I think there's actually a little bit of truth uh, to that. The early church is noted for people who were generous to a fault. Uh, in the second century, Lucian of Samosota, uh, a Greek satirist, said that Christians were an easy mark. Uh, you, could, uh, you could separate them from their money because they were so willing to help people in need. Um, and the Christians in Jerusalem do face upcoming financial challenges. But... Um, I think it's for very different reasons. First of all, uh, the first century was a hard place to live in the best of times. Secondly, they are being persecuted, so you can imagine that that likely impacts uh, their economic status. Uh, and then there's just a lot of poor in big cities. So I, I just, I, I don't, we don't think it's that. <clears throat> uh, by the way, to say that this uh, model of generosity doesn't work is to discount those communities, such as the Essenes, such as uh, others in the early church, such as uh, the Amish, uh, not in the early church, but the Amish. So there's Roman Catholic orders. There's other monastic orders where people choose to live very simply, and it doesn't lead to this kind of poverty. Uh, but the main reason people don't like Acts chapter 4, I mean, let's, let's be honest, the main reason people don't like this is because it sounds like something Karl Marx would write. It sounds like something you read in Das Kapital, not something that you are expecting to come across in the New Testament. Um, so, look, if your definition of socialism is an economic model based on cooperation rather than competition, um, then you could think uh, that, that what you're reading there in that second reading is from Das Kapital. But if your definition of uh, socialism not only includes this idea of cooperation, but it includes all things being held in common by the state. Uh, there's no private property. Then this falls apart because as you read through the New Testament, certainly as you just keep reading through this passage, you see people were sharing, the, they were selling their land, their private property. They still had private property. And so uh, what is described in uh, Acts chapter 4 is different from what Marx was advocating. The giving in Acts chapter 4, the generosity, was all um, something that was being motivated by people's heart. It was not being forced by the state. Um, so, if Acts chapter 4 makes you squirm, so be it. It is in the book. Uh, but what that means is my opening statement, that one where I talked about union with Christ consists of the most intimate communication with him and having him before our eyes and in our hearts and being filled with the highest love for him 
while at the same time turning our hearts uh, to our brothers whom he has closely bound to us and for whom he also sacrificed his life. It means that statement comes from Karl Marx, one of the most famous atheists uh, of the last uh, millennium, uh, the man who mocked religion as the opiate of the masses, the man whose uh, influence has led to the slaughter of millions of Christians and the death of hundreds of millions of others. So, uh, what's up with that? I mean, how do we explain that? Well, stay tuned. So, this is episode number 71 of 100 Plus, and we are focused on Karl Marx. In episode 70, we looked at Charles Darwin. Uh, Ahead, we have Freud and Nietzsche. Uh, I am doing a run of 19th century people of great influence now, of those whose influence sort of superseded the 19th century in which they lived. It expanded into the 20th century and arguably continues to today. So it's possible that I picked the wrong four um, in his book, Intellectuals from Marx to Tolstoy and Sartre to Chomsky. British historian Paul Johnson obviously picks uh, different people. I actually think he has a little bit different objective than I do and a little bit narrower focus. Uh, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna bang my spoon on my high chair here and argue that I'm right. Instead, I'll, I'll note that part of what Johnson observes in his book is that we're heading into a new era and it's a new era in which people are gonna have these really lasting influences. Now, that is not new because that's sort of the premise of this whole series, right? We've been looking at people who have, people or ideas or events that have been pivot points, that have been significant influences on what follows, and it shapes the world, which in turn shapes us. But what's new about this as we look at these these men, they're all men in this case, uh, Marx and Freud and and Nietzsche uh, and uh, Darwin, as we look at these people, what's new is that the influence of the church is waning. And so you have people stepping in without any kind of uh, spiritual formation, any kind of revealed text that they're trying to cling to. They're sort of free to go wherever they jolly well want to go. And so so we end up in a different spot. Now, uh, Johnson will will make some point of the fact that uh, they're all very, all four of the people that that he's looking at are all very critical of those that have come before him, especially those uh, who have any kind of uh, Christian uh, influence in their life. Uh, but he's going to point out that they all turn out to be uh, profound hypocrites in their own way. And in fact, their lives were quite decadent and they treated other people very poorly. And they set up systems, uh, political, economic, uh, cultural systems that have uh, not only been a failure, but have led to the devastation of millions, if not tens of millions of lives. Well, uh, all that, a bit as an aside, we are focusing today on the second of the four ruling from the grave, that is Karl Marx, or Karl Heinrich Marx, to be exact. He is the German philosopher, born May 1818, who lived until March of 1883. He is um, sort of celebrated and noted as a philosopher, as a philosopher, as a uh, economist, as a historian, as a political theorist, and as a social 
revolutionary. Uh, his best-known works are the Communist Manifesto, which is a little pamphlet uh, that he wrote in 1948, and then his uh, three-volume work, uh, that should be 1848, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was like, whoa. Uh, and then his three-volume work, Das Kapital, which came out um, over time. It's three volumes and sort of released them uh, over time, 1867 to 1883. So, like Darwin, Marx is a major figure who shapes uh, the world after him. His impact continues to be profound. You know, <laughs> it may not be a good thing, but you know you've made a big impact on the world when your name is turned into a word, uh, a verb, an adjective, a noun, whatever. Um, so, in a moment, I'm gonna, we're going to back up and I'm going to give you the rundown on Marx's life, some of the biographical stuff. But I want to start here by um, making sure that you understand what Marxism is. So a lot of people use the word socialism, Marxism, and communism as if they're the same thing. And they're, you know, they're cousins, but there are some differences, uh, and it's important, um, it's important to understand those differences. Um, I've read, by the way, lots of different explanations of how they're different. And some people say, well, Marx is the theorist and uh, socialism is sort of a, a, a small step and communism is sort of the revolutionary arm of socialism. And uh, I've read a, a lot of different ways in which people will tease these apart. Just for my own purposes, I'm going to tell you what I, my operating definitions on these three uh, and then you know at least how I'm thinking about this. So uh, socialism is the view that goes back a few hundred years, uh, again, to some utopian ideals in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries that private property uh, is, is a bad thing. It causes all kinds of problems. We need to move away from private property uh, in order to maximize human happiness. And so uh, private property all eventually needs to be destroyed taken over uh, by the state, taken over collectively, it becomes public property. And that doesn't simply include stuff, it includes, importantly, uh, the means of production. So the factories, the sources of wealth generation. Now, by the way, as a quick aside, uh, let me just note here, I'll say more about this later, but uh, if it worked, like, if, uh, if, if we could have everybody be really happy uh, if we divided stuff equally and, and, and actually there was enough, if we divided it up equally, everybody had enough, uh, well, that's an interesting, I mean, that's a much different uh, discussion than we're going to have. The problem is, it doesn't work. Uh, we could critique socialism and all of these from a, a biblical framework and say, look, this just doesn't really understand how humans have been created to live, having been made in the image of God as creative people and of those who have stewardship, not necessarily ownership, and I think we misunderstand, uh, biblically speaking, we're not really owners. Uh, we're temporary stewards of God's stuff. Everything on the asset side of the ledger is sort of uh, on loan to us. We are stewards expected to use and invest those resources in ways that, that uh, reflect God's values. Now, that's not the way lots of people think about this, but uh, I just don't think 
God created us to be stewards. He created us to be creative. And I just think that socialism misses that from a, so from a biblical framework, I don't think it works. Uh, it also, it just doesn't account. Socialism does not uh, factor in human sin right now and laziness and greed and all kinds of other things. Um, additionally, it's just worth noting that in order to get uh, to get into this system that, that uh, you know, Marxists and communists want to get to where everybody's just holding hands and, you know, everyone to each according to their, uh, everyone according to their gifts and each according to their need and everybody's sharing and everybody's doing their part and we're all holding hands and singing kumbaya and everybody's just happy. Um, in order to get there, you know, they say, well, you know, uh, Stalin famously, you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. Uh, you've got to have this oppressive system that's going to come in and take everything and then try and set up the perfect utopia, the workman's paradise that they promised. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So socialism is this political economic theory in which there's no public property uh, because that's a bad thing. So Marxism is the ideology that uh, Karl Marx articulates uh, which, by the way, as radical as Marx is, I'm going to continue to maintain, Jesus says more shocking things than Karl Marx. Um, if you read the red letters, if you read the black letters after the red letters in the Bible, you often find people are suffering whiplash because they can hardly comprehend who Jesus is and what he's claiming. But uh, I'll, I'll say Marxism sort of, pivots around a handful of points, I'll, I'll give you four. Um, first of all, all that exists is material. So you might remember Marx comes uh, out of Hegel and Hegel's dialectic. And Hegel um, held that there was more than the material world. But Marx, I said, is going to take Hegel and his dialectic. He's going to turn it upside down. He's going to hold that there is, in fact, nothing other than the material world. And so uh, there is no transcendent meaning, there is no heaven, religion's the opiate of the masses, promise them um, that they'll get their, their just rewards in heaven, then um, you know, they'll believe whatever they, whatever they believe and you can move on. But there is nothing beyond this life. That's a starting premise for Marxism. Uh, secondly, Marxism argues, at least, um, um, at least he sort of operates under the assumption that uh, humans are ultimately good. Utopia is possible. Uh, and in his system, um, what he replaces sin with is sort of political oppression. So he believes that you can create a system uh, in which everyone is going to play nice and there will be no greed and... Um, he, he doesn't see that he can't get there. He, he doesn't understand. Uh, he hates the bourgeoisie, but uh, he doesn't sort of understand the whole fallen nature of humanity. Um, uh, another aside here is that uh, what you find in Marxist systems is because they hold <clears throat> that people are good and that you can create a good society, when things still aren't working, as of course they never do, they thought that at some point the promise was that government would just wither away because the system would be perfect and so fine-tuned and everybody's just going to do what they're supposed to do and it's all going to work. But, but what you get instead is, is ongoing oppression. 
But in order to, to explain this, what they'll talk about is that people are mentally ill. So that the reason it's not working for that person is because they're, they're criminally insane sometimes. So I had a friend, um, Sherry and I have a friend that's a Belarusian couple. Uh, so this is uh, up there by Ukraine. And uh, they uh, are Christians and, and um, uh, were doing work before the Soviet wall came down, so it's all underground and undercover and all that. And then with, uh, with perestroika and all of that, uh, they had more open times to sort of preach the gospel, started a bunch of churches. Uh, and one time he went to City Hall, my friend went to City Hall to say, hey, you know, we've got all these churches and we want to help the poor. Tell me where, the, you know, sh- where are the poor in the city? Who are the, who are the families that need help? And he said, you know, he almost got himself thrown in jail for suggesting that there could be anybody in any need in, in these communities. So, uh, <clears throat> so that's how they're going to try and explain some of this because, again, the system doesn't work. Uh, a third um, big idea here, <clears throat> excuse me, with, with Marxism is that human societies develop through class conflict. Um, so societies have been evolving, economic systems evolve from feudalism, and you move on from there. Capitalism is, is the system that is going to give way to communism. Capitalism is sort of a pre-communist, pre-Marxist state. They actually, that's how they write their, their dictionary definitions. And, and you know, I don't know who it was. It was Harcourt Brace or it was Webster's or somebody when selling dictionaries into China, uh, changed the definition of capitalism, and they had it uh, as, uh, as a precursor to Marxism. And so this is one of the ideas that Marx held on to. Uh, he argued that, um, that the working poor were going to move, capitalism would come in place, and then eventually the workers would realize they're being exploited, and they would uh, unite, and there would be a revolution and then uh, you would have this uh, working out of the principles and systems, and you would get this per- perfect worker's paradise. So that, uh, that, is, um, that is socialism and Marxism. Communism is different yet again. So uh, Marx and his colleague Engels um, had ideas about how to get to this utopian uh, scenario that they imagined was going to happen, but they, they, they wanted to help prompt it. And communism comes along as being more of a heavy-handed government structure in order to take the Marxist ideals from the, the sort of the baby steps of socialism and get it to a full-out uh, communism. So uh, they, they saw the need for a transitionary government and... Um, and it would have to be total. So what you, what you get in these systems is you get totalitarianism, right? You have to control everything. You have to control people. You have to control their property. You have to control what they learn. You have to control the press. You have to control religion. You have to control everything. You've got to control all the dials in order to get society to work the way it is going to be utopian. So uh, as you can pick up... Um, uh, I, I, I just don't think that this has worked very well. Um, every place that it has been tried, it has failed. 
Uh, it has been implemented. Uh, not not um, as Marx and Engels predicted, uh, coming out of advanced industrialized states. So they were a little frustrated. So the first place that, that Marxism gets put in place is in Russia, following the Bolshevik Revolution, 1917. Uh, but that's sort of a poor struggling country. They're coming out of World War I. That's not who they expected were going to be the ones uh, that were going to move into, uh, move into uh, communism, move into um, Marxism. So they're a little surprised by that. They have to tweak their, tweak their writings a little bit. Um, but um, they, they, they see this movement in Russia to get rid of the bourgeoisie. By the way, I, a month ago, uh, in advance of this, I re- went back and reread George Orwell's Animal Farm, which I read you know, 30 years ago. I did not appreciate just how much of a stinging rebuke Animal Farm is. It's been a brilliant, fun book, uh, just how much of a stinging uh, rebuke Animal Farm is uh, of this move uh, of Russia and of the, the move into Marxism. So in Animal Farm, the pigs uh, are, are the two-legged pigs, right? They walk on their hind legs for a while. They're, they're two-legged. But then they, uh, they uh, or excuse me, they walk on four legs, and then they start to walk on two legs. So the sheep were saying, you know, two legs bad, four legs good. Um, and, and you've got this system where everybody's equal, but then the pigs are going to become the Communist Party members. They're going to become the ones that have to implement everything. They're different, right? They end up with all the, all the goods and all the stuff. And uh, what you see, by the way, is uh, the church gets snuffed out because you've got to control everything. And the state and, and the Communist Party really become the religion of the people. So... Look, Marxism, communism, socialism, um, especially Marxism and communism, have been fully tried and they've failed. So Russia, uh, China, you know, has tweaked the dials and tried to be a little bit more capitalistic to get their, their things running, but are trying to now have much more tight controls on things. North Korea, uh, Cuba, these are the places that have tried to embrace uh, the views of Marx and they just don't work. So... Back to the life of Karl Marx. Um, he was born uh, to a, into a German family. He's the third of nine children. Uh, bef- before he is uh, born, his father, uh, who was Jew, uh, had converted uh, to become, uh, I think, a Lutheran uh, in order to do better in business. And to him, religion was simply, you did whatever you had to do in order to get by, you know, check the box, be uh, accepted so you can um, have a, a commercial enterprise. Um, so there is, uh, there is a period in which uh, Marx, as a young man, is going to embrace Christianity and say some very positive things about uh, Christianity. Uh, <clears throat> but he is going to fall away, I think when he's about 17. Uh, and at least two things are going to happen that drive this. Uh, one is that he goes away to the university and he gets exposed to other ideas, especially Hegel, but he runs into a lot of liberal Christian thinking. And again, this is again capital L liberalism. It's not really Christianity. It's sort of a very different kind of thing. So he meets those who claim to be Christians who actually aren't affirming any of the things that he thought were part of the, the creed. Um, and he also meets other people who are advocating um, the views of Hegel, who just died before he shows up there. 
Uh, that gets his attention. And then also, um, he comes across um, uh, just a lot of corrupt church leaders. And he comes across people who are not... Um, who are not living out the gospel in any way, shape, or form. And there's people who are being hurting. There's people who are being oppressed. There's people who are starving. And the church, uh, the state church, again, state churches tend to be a little bit um, anemic. Uh, they're compromised sort of right out of the gate. The state church is not doing much to be the kind of uh, transformational, grace-filled, loving, Jesus-focused community that they're supposed to be. So, um, uh, it really makes you wonder how the world might have been different if the church that Marx had intersected with when he went to college had been a true church, a real church, a church in which uh, Christ followers are trying to um, love God and love others and care for the poor and attend to widows and orphans and uh, fight against injustice and other things. This obviously, uh, this pains me. Uh, I really wish that uh, we, have, we had done a better job for 2,000 years. So I'm, I'm, I'm arguing in this series that we're doing a better job than a lot of people think, that the church is better in so many ways than people understand. Uh, but there certainly have been failures. And uh, how might things have been different if, um, uh, if there had not been the Crusades, uh, if, um, if, if people had modeled Christ's message, if people had cared for the poor. How different would things be today in terms of uh, issues of ethnic and racial tension and justice if um, the white church had taken human rights uh, more seriously and not used the Bible in any case to justify slavery? Um, again, to be sure, I think fighting slavery becomes principally what happens uh, because of Christians. Slavery is a, is a global problem, and uh, it gets attacked in a certain setting. It gets attacked by Christians first, uh, but um, we could have done better than we've done. So, uh, all that to say, Karl Marx goes to the university, and he loses uh, his faith, and um, he starts to become a big disciple of Hegel. He studies law and philosophy. Uh, he ends up getting married. He marries a, a woman who's a theater critic and a political activist. Uh, he is going to start writing. For a while, he will write all kinds of things, poetry. He'll write nonfiction. He'll write fiction. Um, in 1940, um, he is... 1840. Wow. In 1840, he's uh, finishing his doctorate um, in which he argues that theology needs to be subservient to philosophy. Uh, at this point, he is publishing on a variety of fronts, um, and he starts to get sideways with uh, the Prussian government because of his very uh, unchristian and unprussian views. Uh, he moves to Paris. While he's in Paris, he meets um, Engels, who persuades him that uh, the working class uh, will be those who will foment the revolution. This is, they're going to play off each other. And, and uh, then in uh, 1844, his views sort of solidify. So they're shaped by uh, a number of things, uh, Hegel, uh, French utopian socialism, and uh, British political economics. So those things are in place. 
He's developing his views. He's fine-tuning his views. Uh, he's going to continue to write. He write. He's writing now for his political ideology. He's writing against capitalism. Uh, he starts to gain some prominence. Uh, the first thing that gets out there that gets some notoriety is the Communist Manifesto, uh, in which he is writing uh, about economics and society. And it's, pro- it's remarkably well-timed. It is a revolutionary uh, track, and there are lots of revolutions happening. So um, at this point, he's finding it uh, sort of impossible to live in Europe, so he ends up in London, and he'll spend uh, between 1850 and 1860 there uh, at the Communist League headquarters. So, and that's basically where his life is going to start to to stall. But uh, there's more that could be said about Marx. Uh, It's worth noting he and his wife had seven children, but only three survived to adulthood. Uh, It's worth noting, as I said, that he writes poetry, and he actually is pretty good with the turn of a phrase. So you get things from him like uh, the proletariat. So this is the working class. The bourgeoisie is, you know, controlling things. The proletariat has nothing to lose but their chains. Um, And religion is the opium of the masses. It's not always clear. You see debates as to whether or not those are actually his words or he just lifted them from somebody else. But uh, he, at the very least, he had a good ear to turn a phrase. Uh, he does not enjoy great health, uh, and he's poor, mostly because he won't work. Um, some have argued that one of the reasons he hated capitalism is because he hated to work. Other people argue that the reason he hated capitalism um, is because he thought it was Jewish, and he hates the Jews. He's an anti-Semite, which, again, his dad was Jewish. His grandfather is a rabbi. Uh, but, but Marx comes out, really, uh, as, as quite a strong uh, anti-Semite uh, in his views. And uh, he's just generally, he's not a nice guy. I mean, his family is going to live in poverty, and he does nothing. He basically lives off of Engel's income, and Engels can barely stand the guy because he's, he's just remarkably hard to get, to get along with. Uh, he's vi- the only way you get along with him is you just completely suck up to him. Uh, again, I think we can make an argument that, uh, that a lot of these people who have advocated views that become popular, they're not, they're not in the end, by the people who are up close and personal with them, they're not uh, nice people. So uh, he advocates violence. He advocates violence against Jews. Um, he doesn't support his family. His wife has got to sell all of her possessions. His kids have got to sell their beds and their clothes. And, you know, he's, he's, he's got to, if his wife dies, he doesn't uh, pay to have his daughters educated. He takes a mistress, the father's a child, refuses to recognize or support the child. So um, he's not a nice guy. So there's a lot of things that can be said about him. Let me focus in on uh, on a couple in particular. What needs to be noted is that Marx has a profound impact on our world. Many people embraced Marx's thinking. Initially in Russia, following the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, but then after World War II, it spreads, right? I mean, again, China and uh, Cuba, and uh, Venezuela, and North Korea, and uh, you just have uh, Vietnam. You have a lot of people who are going to sign on with Marx. Paul, jo- 
Paul Johnson, who wrote the, the book uh, that I referenced in the beginning, he says that you know, it's, just, it's massively difficult to underestimate uh, Karl Marx's influence on modern times. Um, secondly, just again to underline this, Marxism doesn't work. Uh, socialism and communism have led to much suffering by people. Uh, I'm going to assume that you have a working knowledge of these failures. Uh, if not, you can just read. So uh, a couple weeks ago, P.J. O'Rourke, who was a uh, sort of a political satirist, wickedly funny guy, uh, probably not appreciated because he was uh, funny, so funny, so consistently funny that I don't think he got taken seriously. But he was often writing against uh, Marxism. You could read him. You could be more serious and read uh, Solzhenitsyn. Uh, his Day in the Life of Ivan, uh, Ivan Denisovich. Anyway, you could read Cancer Ward. <laughs> you could read Solzhenitsyn. Cancer Ward, by the way, is, is an interesting book to read. So the idea is that there, I think there's eight beds in this cancer ward. And uh, Solzhenitsyn, by the way, who had been in a cancer ward, he had suffered cancer as a younger man. But each of the beds, the people there represent different views, different political ideologies, different worldviews. And uh, it's just fascinating. There's a Communist Party member there who's scandalized that he's in the bad hospital as opposed to the privileged hospital, right? Which again is just antithetical to sort of the whole Marxist ideal. But uh, you could read Malcolm Muggeridge. So he was a very prominent British um, journalist, sort of public intellectual. And for a while in his early life, he is a strong champion of uh, Marxism. And he sings its praises. And then he goes to uh, he goes to Russia. He goes to the Soviet Union. And he's like, oh my goodness, this is nothing uh, like what we have been told. Uh, you could also read uh, Thomas Sowell. I'm reading a basic economics book by Sowell, and he's a brilliant writer, uh, brilliant in terms of his clarity. Uh, there's no charts or graphs in this economics book. It's all real-life illustrations, and he does a lot to explain this. You could look uh, at a set of statistics. There was an article in um, the Washington Post, which is not a uh, conservative magazine uh, paper by any stretch, uh, but they came out with, uh, with a, uh, an op-ed in 2017, so November of 2017, so it's 100 years since the Bolshevik Revolution, so you've had 100 years of communism. And they said, uh, look, let's just acknowledge, this 100 years under communism, I mean, what happened in China and Russia, what happened in, uh, it's happened in North Korea and in Cuba and Venezuela, this has been, these are the worst places in the history of the world. Like, a hundred million people died at the hands of their own government. They didn't die in war. They didn't die from, uh, from sort of natural starvation. They're starved to death by their government. 45 million Chinese starve under Mao Zedong as he's trying to, you know, as he's trying to turn the dials and to get things settled in. You have, you have a number, you have millions dying under Stalin. You have all, all kinds of things. And it's not just... It's not just that they die, those that live have lost all their freedoms. And this is what this, what this writer said in this, uh, in this Washington Post article. 
you lose not only your freedom of uh, speech, you lose your freedom of religion, you lose your freedom of assembly, you lose, lose the freedom to choose where you're going to live. Like people get relocated against their will uh, in, into different places. And so um, these, are, these are horrible places and, and it is a failed system. So um, I think it's worth noting as we think about Marx that Marxism uh, fails because it has a wrong view of reality and it has a wrong understanding of human nature. Socialism assumes no sin. And uh, look, one of the things I appreciate, I've been in some interesting conversations uh, in the last year with those advocating socialism and uh, Marxism, even communism, sort of surprising young people. Um, and they're arguing and advocating. And one of the things that I like is a lot of this is driven by a, by a passion to see you know, the, the bottom people lifted up and the, to see more uh, love and care for those who are not making it and to try and fix uh, the system. And so uh, you know, it's been said, if you're not a liberal by the time you're 30, you've got no heart. But if you're not a conservative by the time you're 40, you've got no mind. Uh, and that, by the way, I know that statement. I apologize to all of you who are, who are liberals who I have now offended. But um, it's worth noting, I think, that, that, that it just doesn't comport because it misunderstands humans and it misunderstands the God-ordained role of government. It just ends up not working and lots and lots of people get oppressed. Uh, but it still has advocates. And indeed, you could argue we're seeing a, a growing chorus of voices suggesting that it might work. Um, by the way, there was a moment in the late 80s uh, when you know, Reagan, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, and then the wall comes down, and it looks like, uh, it looks like um, Marxism, communism, uh, that it's spent, it's done, it's over. Uh, you famously had that book written by uh, Francis Fukuyama saying it's the end of history in which he basically was saying, uh, you know, we've had the Hegelian dialectic going back and forth. Uh, we've moved down the line, but uh, you don't go from capitalism to communism. Uh, liberal democracy, liberal capitalism, that's as good as it's going to get. Uh, so that was the argument that, uh, that this guy was, was trying to make. I've not read the book. I understand it's frequently misunderstood and derided because it's misunderstood. But... But it's clear that, uh, that he's sort of wrong at this point. Uh, all the, the efforts by, at this moment, China and, uh, and the Soviet, well, the Soviet, Russia trying to become the Soviet bloc again uh, fighting. So, so give, me, give me a few more minutes here to, to stop being a podcaster talking about history and to go back into my uh, day job as a pastor and to just... Uh, note, because I think there's a response that gets called for here. Uh, I'm going to base what I say on things that I've already said, three ideas that I've developed over the course of this podcast. Number one, uh, just recently, that Marxism is a disaster. The socialism, Marxism, communism triad is uh, a flawed ideology. It's based on wrong thinking, wrong understanding of humans. Uh, it's never worked for more than 10 minutes and it leads to untold misery. So, um, by the way, love the joke Reagan told back in the 80s uh, about, uh, I don't know if he said Marxism or communism, but uh, and I, it, I, 
you know, obviously not his joke. I don't know who he's repeating, whether it was a speechwriter or uh, some comedian, but he said, what would happen if the Soviet empire took over Saudi Arabia? So, what would happen if the Soviet empire took over Saudi Arabia? He said, for a few months, nothing, and then the Arabs would run out of sand. <laughs> okay, maybe a little political geek humor there. Uh, I thought it was a brilliant joke. So anyway, socialism, communism, Marxism does not work. Number two, capitalism shaped by Christian convictions is the best way forward. Capitalism is a proven engine of economic growth. Capitalism has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of abject poverty. Capitalism is the best system that we're going to get in this broken world. Um, which, by the way, one of the things that Christ Church has just started, like this week, we started a, uh, a job uh, incubator. Uh, we're, we're trying to help people, anybody, but, but this has a particular focus on the under-resourced communities around us, to help people launch jobs, to start companies. So we've, we're piloting with a Christian, it's called Genesis Job Accelerator, and uh, we're trying to teach the skills to help people start their own companies because that's one of the ways to help people move out of poverty. Um, however, so communism doesn't work. Capitalism is the best system. However, capitalism that works has to be shaped by Christian conviction. Capitalism works uh, because it recognizes that we're going to operate out of uh, our own self-interest. It works because it... it it, uh, uh, using free markets, it sort of uh, leverages the collective wisdom of you know, tens of millions of people making transactions, so the market sort of fixes itself. Uh, so it works for some good reasons, but people do get hurt. The market is not God, it's not perfect, and the market has no soul, it has no conscience. So we must recognize that there are Darwinian overtones to capitalism. It is a survival of the fittest, and lots of people like it when they're the fittest uh, and, and it's working. But the whole creative destruction part of capitalism is something that we have to, uh, we have to help people who are going to have a rough landing navigate well. Not everybody is in a position to do that, and so there has to be uh, some additional thinking beyond just a completely unchecked um, unchecked capitalistic system. So whether the check is Christian conviction or the check is something else, uh, I'll leave it to you to debate. But uh, speaking to those uh, of you who are Christians, I want to say we have the opportunity and a responsibility to help create societies that work. This demands that we attend to the poor. So just to be clear, the mission of the church is not exclusively to attend to the poor. We have a gospel to proclaim. We have an empty tomb. We have a savior. We have, we have salvation. We've, we've, we are to proclaim the good news. Uh, I'm not suggesting otherwise, uh, but we're also to engage in good works. Some churches only do the first and they never do the second. Some churches never do the first. They only do the second. We're called to do both the first and the second. Um, so, in light of that, let me know that there are people in the world today who are suffering in extreme poverty. They are not suffering because there are uh, global shortages. 
The world does not suffer from any true shortages. Um, there's more than enough food on this planet to feed every hungry mouth. There's more than enough water for everyone to drink. There are more than enough resources to clothe and shelter every person made in God's image. We keep hearing uh, Malthus uh, famously back in uh, the late uh, 18th century talked about the fact that you know the population was going to run unchecked and all, all kinds of people were going to die because we're going to run out of food. Uh, Malthus was wrong. It's not close to happening. God has provided everything we need for adequate provision for humans. Not perhaps for human greed, but enough for human need. Um, and it's important to realize that when people are starving in India, they're not starving in India because we're eating too much in the United States. It's, economics is not a zero-sum game. Um, so we, we've got to understand that there is enough out there in order for uh, everybody to be cared for. We've got to understand the way economics works. We have to understand that the rich don't get rich by exploiting the poor generally. The, the people that get rich get rich because they found ways to help other people. We've also got to understand though, that poverty is not simple. If it was simple, we would have fixed it by now. It takes our best thinking. We have to understand the, the suffering of the poor, the suffering of oppression, the unjust systems, these go against God and his heart. Scripture is clear about these things, and so uh, we have got to step up and navigate this. So I'm, I'm just about to get to my point. Let me, let me just also note, uh, just so that you're thinking about this problem carefully and, and uh, comprehensively, um, the poor are poor for all kinds of different reasons. Some are poor because their whole community got wiped out by a tsunami, uh, or the wage earner in the family got sick and lost their job, or the crop failed. Uh, they were making it, but just barely. They didn't have a safety net, and then something happened, and uh, it's overturned the apple cart, and they're now in crisis. Some people are poor because they were born so far down that they have not been able uh, to reach the bottom rung of the ladder and pull themselves up. Some people are poor because of the wickedness of others, uh, because evil people are exploiting them. Uh, International Justice Mission uh, has been bringing these stories to uh, our attention recently, and some of them are tragic. Fortunately, IJM and others are trying to fight against these unjust systems. Uh, let me go on. Some people are poor because they choose to be. They give up everything in order to live with the poor. They give up everything in order to, to give things to, uh, to help care for others. Some people are poor because they're lazy and they are not willing to work. So the Bible says if you're not willing to work, then you don't get to eat. Now, there's obviously exceptions to this, um, but, but understand this. We have a call as Christ followers. To, to live into, to, to care for the poor, to try and embrace and, and, and expand the kingdom of God, the vision and the value of the heart of God. And uh, this is clear when you look at what Jesus says, when you look at his life, when you look at who he cares for, we have to be motivated down this path. And the good news is we can make a profound difference in this arena. The church can do something. The church is the most amazing, the most dynamic, the most global, the most decentralized organization in the history of the world. Peter Drucker called it. 
no less than Peter Drucker, called it the only successful social institution in the world. We can fix these problems. Um, and so what we need to do is we need to recognize that, um, that the, 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 the system works. So I have a, a good friend, recently retired after 25 years with World Vision. So World Vision is the largest, um, you know, the, the largest uh, mission agency or human relief agency in the world uh, in its space. So it's not as big as Red Cross. It's not as big, I don't, I don't think, as crew. It's doing different things than, than these organizations. But it is uh, sort of the largest um, global uh, Christian humanitarian agency. And he worked for 25 years with them, always traveling to the worst parts of the world. Um, he, part of the, I traveled with him a little bit, and uh, it was a real pain for him to travel towards the end of his uh, traveling because he said, my uh, passport makes it look like I'm a CIA officer uh, because nobody goes to the parts of the world that I go to uh, unless you're with the CIA or you're a journalist or in your relief organization and uh, he said they just assume that if you're in a relief organization or you say you're a journalist that you're also perhaps the CIA. Uh, but he said, look, here's the deal. Um, there is enough money in the church to, quote, one, raise the income of the bottom half of the planet to $3 a day, which would be a profound difference to those that are living on $1 or $2 a day. Uh, two, provide adequate food for the 1 billion people who are malnourished. Three, provide education for the 375 million children who are receiving no education. Four, provide clean drinking water and sanitation to the 3.8 billion who do not have it. Some of these stats are now 15 years old, and I think things have gotten better. They've gotten a little bit worse during COVID, but they got better um, significantly leading up to that. But he said, the cost, according to our calculations, World Vision calculations, um, is the total cost of doing this would be $45 billion a year for 10 years. Now, he says, ignore the fact that we're spending 10 times that amount on advertising, eight times that amount on illegal pets, and half of that on, uh, excuse me, eight times of that on illegal drugs, <laughs> and half of that on pets. He said, uh, and let's set aside the challenges of using that money wisely, in many cases, the challenges are not financial. They're leadership and, and other things. Poverty is not simple. Again, there's no simple solutions. Um, but let's just stay at 30,000 feet for a second. He said, the global Christian income, these are, these are number two decades old now, but he said the global Christian income is 15 uh, and a half, you know, 15,500 billion dollars a year. Giving to all Christian causes is $280 billion a year. If every Christian tithed, we don't, average giving is about 2 to 3%, um, but if every Christian tithed, and I would argue that that's sort of a baseline starting point, but if every Christian tithed, we would actually put $1.5 trillion to work. If that happened, uh, then... Um, <laughs> we could double the income of every church, double the income of every parachurch ministry, eradicate poverty, still have $945 billion left over, and basically that means have $1 trillion a year left to spend. Everything that we need in order to fix some of these 
problems about poverty which do exacerbate government challenges. Everything is available to us uh, today. God has provided for us. Uh, much of this is up to us. Okay, I'm going to stop preaching. I'm going to go back to my uh, podcast and say, um, look, I am encouraging you um, to be aware of Mark's. I'm really encouraging you to follow Jesus, to live in light of eternity, and uh, to live in light of the biblical definition of reality. This means living below your means so you can give generously, um, and it also means being alert to all the things that are going around. So Marx is one of the influences. When we come back, we still have two more of these people to look at. Uh, next in the queue is Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher and nihilist. See you then. <laughs>